your Bible and turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 40. We're continuing our series on the life of Joseph that we began three weeks ago, but we're also going verse by verse through the entire book of Genesis, and we started this expositional series all the way back in the second week of January. So we're moving towards a conclusion uh, in the middle of December, Lord willing, of this series. Uh, This particular series on Joseph, I'm calling From a Pit to a palace. And that's what we see transpire in Joseph's life. He literally is in a pit thrown there by his jealous brothers, and he will be catapulted to leadership in the palace in Egypt. Well, this morning I'm preaching a message I've entitled The Sharpening. The Sharpening. Well, throughout the ages, one of the prized possessions of men has been a sword. And a sword in the hand of a man uh, gives him a sense of protection and preservation for those who are under his charge, those he's been responsible to care for, to, to be prepared for battle, what may lie ahead. And when I was a youth pastor, I would do it, uh, every year for several years uh, what I called a middle school retreat uh, I entitled Becoming a Modern Day Knight. It was based on a book by Robert Lewis. And at that retreat with 13- and 12-year-old boys, I would walk them through different aspects of masculinity and what masculinity, true masculinity, looks like from the Scriptures. We would also do a lot of different manly activities that men like to do. And then at the conclusion of the retreat, we'd all go back in the church bus, back to the church property, and we'd enter into our student ministry center where they weren't aware of this, but their parents were waiting on them. And we would do what I called a knighting ceremony, a ceremony where I would knight them as young men, and I would present to them a sword. And you can imagine a 13-year-old boy being handed a sword. This is actually one of the swords I gave to those boys. Their eyes got big and their face lit up. And of course, their moms were in the audience just cringing. Oh no, my 13-year-old has a sword. And so, but it was incredible because there's something about a sword in the hand of a young man that gives him a sense of responsibility and, and power uh, to protect and to defend. As such, swords have been commonplace in, in works of fiction and in novels, and some that you may be familiar with, a few examples. You have King Arthur and Excalibur, right? And the pulling of that sword from the stone was to signify who was the rightful uh, heir of the throne over Britain. Another great example of a sword is in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, as Bilbo Baggins has this sword, uh, and he actually gives it to Frodo Baggins. Sting is the name of the sword, and this sword would light up whenever any orcs were about. And then, of course, we can't forget the modern-day novel, uh, The uh, Princess Bride. And there you have Inigo Montoya, right? And Inigo Montoya had this sword that was crafted by his father for the six-fingered man. But Inigo Montoya wanted to avenge his father's death. And so he carried this sword about and said, My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Finish it. Prepare to die. Exactly. What a great film. And then finally, of course, in science fiction you have the lightsaber, and there's Yoda with the lightsaber. So swords are popular in modern fiction and older fiction, but they're very prevalent in the Bible. You may not know this, but swords are mentioned over 400 times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and particularly in the New Testament, a sword is used as an example, a symbol, a metaphor for the Bible, for the Scripture, for the Word of God. 
The Apostle Paul, when he gives the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, he concludes that listing of the armor of God with this, these words. He says, take up then the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And you turn over to, to Hebrews chapter 4, and the Bible is described again as a double-edged sword, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so I hope today you have your sword, your Bible, with you today. But a sword is also a powerful example or metaphor for human life because a sword must go through a process to be developed and honed. And it goes through a process of being shaped and honed and eventually tempered in the fire, as do our lives. We are shaped and we are molded and we are formed and honed and tempered and hardened in the fires, the fires we've seen even in this study in Joseph's life. Joseph is being honed and tempered as he's gone through what I referred to as dark adversities. These dark adversities included his jealous brothers throwing him in a pit to die and to leave him for dead. And then his older brother Judah came up with the great idea, hey, at least let's make some money off of him. They see some Ishmaelite traders headed on their way to Egypt. So they pull him up out of the pit and they sell him for 20 shekels of silver to these traders. And they take him to Egypt and there Joseph is put on the auction block and he's purchased as a slave by one Potiphar who happens to be, for all intents and purposes, the chief of police in Egypt for Pharaoh. And there he is in Potiphar's house serving. And because of his giftedness and because of his competency, he's elevated by Potiphar to the highest position in the household. But in comes Mrs. Potiphar. Mrs. Potiphar usually has her eyes on the young slaves that come into the home. And she puts her eyes on Joseph and she's pursuing him day after day, over and over again with these sensual suggestions until finally it's just the two of them in the house together. She grabs a hold of Joseph and she literally says, lie with me. Joseph turns and runs away and leaves his garment in her hands. Well, there's an old poem that says, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And in her scorned State. She weaves a fictitious tale about an attempted rape, and that's why she has the evidence of the garment there. So her husband, Potiphar, throws Joseph in prison for this event. And that's where he is as we come here to Genesis chapter 40. In Genesis chapter 40, what we're going to see is that God is going to do his final work of preparation of this sword named Joseph. And what he's going to do in this season in the prison is he is going to sharpen Joseph. He's going to be brought to a razor-like sharpness so that he can accomplish the final and full work God is calling him to do. So let's consider chapter 40. We're going to read the whole chapter up front this morning. Here's what the Bible says. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each, with it, each dream with its own interpretation." When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Joseph's officers, or Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, 
Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We've had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked, good, baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket of my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now there are coming up for Joseph following this episode some very huge challenges challenges for which he must be prepared to undertake. He will be vaulted and elevated to the position of prime minister over all of Egypt. He will be second in command. And God is going to use this season in the prison to sharpen him, to prepare him for such a time as that. Joseph is a living example of what we need to see that God still does today. God uses us in our downtimes. God uses us and prepares us in our stuck times. Have you ever been in a state of life where you just feel stuck? You're just spinning your wheels? Uh, this week I was thinking about it. It's kind of like when you're on a Ferris wheel and they decide to put some more passengers on and you're just stuck in this Ferris wheel. Come on, let's get this thing going. You ever been there in your spiritual life? Listen, God uses those times of being stuck to prepare us, to sharpen us. And amazingly, after all that Joseph has gone through, from the pit to the Potiphar's house, now to prison, his dreams are still intact. You see, it's been over 10 years since Joseph had these dreams, dreams that God was going to elevate him, yes, to some position of authority and power, and that even his own family members would come and would bow down to him in allegiance. He's still holding on to those dreams. And as we saw last week, even though he's in a place with a new land, with new customs and a new language and strange traditions, God was with him. God's presence was with Joseph through it all, through the ups and the downs, through the highs and the lows. And the Lord is still with Joseph in this passage today. 
Well, the Lord's going to sharpen Joseph in this two-year season in the prison. I want us to consider particularly three ways that God uses these experiences to, in fact, sharpen Joseph for greater usefulness in his hand. The first one is this. Number one, the faithfulness of his God. We see the faithfulness of his God. The chapter begins by telling us, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their Lord the king. And in this incarceration of the cupbearer and the baker, we see evidence of God's faithfulness. Now, I told you last week that when we saw that Potiphar put Joseph in the king's prison, this was a portent of what was coming. This was a, a looking forward to some providence of God being accomplished in Joseph's life. Now, I told you that um, the, the king's prisoners were placed in this prison, the very same prison where these high officials the baker and the cupbearer are put into prison. Now, in this era of history, not so much today, but in that era in history, a cupbearer and a baker in a king's court would have been some of the highest officials in the land. Reason being is because tyrants were always worried that some usurper was out there, some, some person was coming, to, an insurrectionist, to subversely overtake and overthrow their position. And so uh, they would seek to provide protection for themselves with these trusted offices. As I did some research this week in preparation for this message, I realized that there's been several hundred attempts of poisoning on such people, on kings and leaders and, and rulers, some very successful. I also discovered that, th- that this poisoning through food or drink was the murderous method of choice by the Soviet secret police during the Cold War era and also the method of choice by the Gambino crime family of all people. If you'll remember in the Bible, Nehemiah was actually the cupbearer for Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And as such, he was a a trusted official in in a prestigious position. Now, we don't know the exact reason why, but the cupbearer and the baker, these two security officials, if you will, for Pharaoh, are thrown into prison. All that Moses says in the inspired writing is that they committed an an offense. I think it's safe to say it wasn't just some undercooked pastries and some sour-tasting wine. They committed some type of an offense that was so heinous, they were both imprisoned in the king's prison until Pharaoh could decide what he was going to do with them. And in that culture, Pharaoh was considered by the people a god, so he could do with them whatever he wanted to do with them. And it's in this potential plot against Pharaoh that God shows himself faithful to Joseph. God is faithful to to Joseph. We need to never forget that. God is always faithfully working, even in our downtimes, even in our difficulties, even in the hardships, in the struggles. God is still faithfully working. And just to show you how faithful God is to Joseph, look what we read again in verse 4. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. That's the cupbearer and the baker. Now, who's the captain of the guard? Well, we met him last week. His name, Potiphar. He's the chief of police. And Pharaoh says, I want you to be in charge of these two officials who are imprisoned. And Potiphar says, Joseph, I'm putting you in charge of them. Now here, I think it gives further evidence to what I alluded to last week that likely Potiphar understood and knew the proclivities of his wife 
and her attraction to the young servant boys that came into the house. And so rather than killing Joseph, he put him in prison. And now he actually gives him this responsibility of overseeing them. Now, I want you to think about this. What are the chances? What are the chances that Joseph will be thrown in a pit, then sold to some Ishmaelite traders. Those Ishmaelite traders will eventually put him on the auction block. He'll be bought by one Potiphar, who just happens to be the chief of police. He's falsely accused by the chief of police's wife that he's attempted rape on her. He's then thrown into prison. It just so happens the very same prison that these two high-ranking king officials are thrown into. And when they're thrown into that prison, he's given charge over them. What are the chances of all those things falling into place and happening? What are they? 100% because God's behind it all. God is superintending it all. He's in control. And here in this prison, we see the faithfulness of God. And we wouldn't see that if we didn't know the end of the story. We know what's going to happen. Joseph at this point, he doesn't know what's going to happen. But yet he chose, friends, what we must choose to do. Walk by faith and not by sight. Believe in the promises of God. Even in seasons of darkness, in times of uncertainty, we walk by faith and not by sight. Even sometimes through the deepest possible pain. You know somebody in the Bible who did that? His name was Job. I love the way Job reflected on this reality. In Job chapter 23, verse 8 and following, he said, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there and backward, but I do not perceive him. And on the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And we see here the faithfulness of God toward Joseph, even when he is in prison, even through the difficulties and the darkness. Why? Because God is sharpening him for his purposes through his faithfulness. Secondly, I want you to see this. Number two, through the fruitfulness of his gift. Through the fruitfulness of his gift. Now, what is significant about the cupbearer and the baker becomes evident because both of them have very significant, troubling to them, dreams. Now, all of us are probably given to nightmares from time to time. I know if I was imprisoned, I would really probably be given to nightmares. But these are much more than just nightmares. Why? Because these dreams are given by God. And so they're very troubled by these dreams. And they were each given the same kind of dream that were very similar. They were given on the same night. They each have the number three in them. They each have an inference to their responsibility and respective duties in the kingdoms. These dreams were very troubling to them. And Joseph could see it on their faces. And so notice what Joseph asks them at the end of verse 7. He says, why are your faces downcast today. Well, they said to him, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Not only was there, were their dreams troubling, but doubling the trouble was the fact they had no one to interpret the dreams. Now you need to know that in ancient Egypt in this time in history, dream interpreting was actually a full-time vocational job. There were people with catalogs of books of dreams that had been dreamed and interpreted in the past. And if you had a dream, you could go to one of these dream interpreters and obviously for a fee, they would look in their catalogs and see how the elements of your dreams used to be interpreted in other dreams and they could put together an interpretation for you that was custom and of course authoritative in its prescription. 
But now, here are these two high-ranking officials that likely have had dream interpreters before interpret dreams for them, and they don't have access to them anymore. No access to the books with all the interpretations. That's why Joseph says, interpretations belong to God and God alone. It's interesting in the Bible, there's only two individuals who are given this gift to interpret dreams. One is Joseph, the other is Daniel. And with both Joseph and Daniel, they're both in pagan lands against their will, and God gives them the gift of dream interpretation so he can set up this stark contrast between the false gods of the pagan world and the one true God, Yahweh. And here he does that with Joseph here. Now, of personal application for us this morning is this. Listen, when you're in a pattern of being stuck, when you're in what maybe is a holding pattern or even downcast or you sense that you're dejected, you're wrongly imprisoned, we could have the tendency to despair. We could have the tendency to look inward. Here's the application for us. You know one of the best ways out of those seasons? Serve other people. Use the giftedness that God has given you. That's what we see in Joseph's life. He could have despaired. He could have not even worried about their dreams, but he uses the giftedness that God has given him to serve other people. And so these two men, they see Joseph's sincerity. They sense his caring attitude. And so they tell him they're disturbing dreams. And Joseph, having this gift from God, is able to interpret them. The cupbearer goes first. Let's look again at his dream, beginning at the end of verse 9. He says, in my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cup bearer. And so Joseph is speaking with such authority and decisiveness, he realizes, the cupbearer does, that, that he's, there's truth in what Joseph is saying. Well, that happy outcome for the cupbearer compelled the baker to tell Joseph his dream. He says, well, let me tell you my dream, and you can interpret it for me. So look at that. The baker says, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. (laughs) God has given Joseph an amazing gift to interpret dreams And as we'll see next week, Lord willing, he will use that gift to interpret dreams to catapult him to a position of great leadership in in Egypt. Now, what's remarkable remarkable about Joseph's usefulness of his gift is this. Listen, his utter honesty. He doesn't mince words with either the cupbearer or the baker. You might say, well, it's one thing to interpret the cupbearer's dream because it has a particularly happy ending. But man, how could, he, how could he say those things with such stark truthfulness and communicate it to the baker? Well, the Egyptian dream interpreters of that day are not unlike 
the charlatans, the fake psychics and palm readers that exist in our day. You go to them for some type of a reading, some type of interpretation for your life, and of course, they're going to give you a positive reading. Why? Because they want their gullible clients to keep coming back. Well, that's not what Joseph does. Joseph tells the hard truth. Joseph tells the difficult truth. And for the baker, this would have been particularly troubling. Why? Because aristocratic men in Egypt were very concerned about what happened to their remains when they died. That's why mummification was so popular. They wanted to do all they could to to preserve their bodies because they believed that the way your body is preserved at death indicates what type of afterlife you're going to have in their mystical false belief system. And so for the baker to discover your body's going to hang on a tree and it's going to be eaten by scavenger birds, that would have been incredibly horrible for him. Well, it's been observed that what we see in Joseph is really an example of faithful gospel preachers. Faithful gospel preachers have the courage to preach the hard truths. Oh, sure, there are some so-called charlatans who preach only what people want to hear, who fill auditoriums with thousands of people because of their positive, bleached white smile message. They never speak the hard truth. It's like Paul warned the young preacher Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. I think we're there. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. But God calls gospel preachers to be Joseph's in the world, to proclaim not only the good news for the cupbearers, but to proclaim the bad news for the bakers. Unless you repent of your sin, you will likewise perish because you've broken the commands of God. It takes courage to do that. And Joseph demonstrates that truthful courage here. So we see God sharpening Joseph, right? Through the faithfulness of God, through the fruitfulness of his gift, but thirdly and finally, God sharpens Joseph through the forgetfulness for his good and for his glory. You know, sometimes when believers in Jesus and new Christians are starting to understand some of the aspects of the character of God and his nature, particularly his sovereignty, that God is providential in all that happens, sometimes questions will emerge. And you've probably asked some of these questions. Well, Now, if God is sovereign and God is providential over all that happens in the world, well, why should we even pray? You ever thought that? If God is sovereign and God is providential even in salvation, well, why why would we evangelize? Why would we send out missionaries? Listen, just because we believe in the sovereignty of God doesn't mean we don't put boots on the ground and go to work. God clearly had communicated to Joseph that he was working. He was acting. He was providentially caring. Joseph is fully aware of the providence of God. He believes in it. You're going to be restored. You're going to be hung. But that doesn't stop him from planning and working and doing on his own behalf. Notice what he says to the cupbearer, his request. Again, in verse 14, only remember me, he says, 
when it is well with you, that's how much he believes in the providence of God, you're going to be restored. Therefore, work on my behalf and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Joseph is so certainty of God's power and his sovereignty that he appeals to the cupbearer on that behalf. He says, I'm a victim. When you're restored, don't forget about little old me out here in prison and what I've done for you. And you think about this. The day of Pharaoh's birthday comes. The cupbearer and the baker go before the king. And here, Joseph says to the cupbearer, remember me, tell Pharaoh about me when you're there. And I just imagine Joseph just looking out the window of that prison towards the palace, waiting for that messenger to come, maybe even for the cupbearer to come, to deliver the word to the jailer on Pharaoh's orders. Joseph is to be set free. And he looks until finally dusk becomes dark and the sun has set and no one comes. He wakes up the next day. Well, maybe today, maybe today, the cupbearer's just getting settled back into his role. He'll mention me to Pharaoh today. And again, the sun rises and the sun sets and no one comes for Joseph. Days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, and he soon realizes, I've been abandoned. I've been forgotten here in this prison. You ever felt that way? Forgotten? Abandoned? Left with no hope? Joseph being forgotten by the cupbearer. God is doing a work in that forgetfulness, in that amnesia. In fact, there are at least two huge things I see God doing in the cupbearer forgetting about Joseph. First of all, God is strengthening Joseph and he's training Joseph and he's teaching Joseph patience. You see, if the cupbearer had come back even that day and delivered Joseph, he might have been tempted to see the cupbearer as his deliverer. But God is going to teach him. He is his deliverer. He's teaching patience to Joseph. As I thought about this reality, I was reminded again of the old hymn by William Cowper, uh, written in the 1700s, the early 1700s. I've shared this with you before several years ago, but it certainly bears repeating. Notice what his hymn says poetically. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God is strengthening Joseph. God is preparing Joseph. God is sharpening Joseph. You see, by delaying Joseph's rescue from prison, not only is he doing good towards Joseph, but he's going to establish himself as the only rescuer and thereby get all the glory he deserves. And God is all about his glory. Secondly, what I think God's doing in this delayed rescue of Joseph is he's setting up and he's establishing 
the future salvation of Israel and of the whole known world through the agency of Joseph. And in this, Joseph would in fact be a type of Christ who came to save Israel and all the nations of the world. You see, because if Joseph would have been set free by the agency of the cupbearer's word to Pharaoh, and say the cupbearer comes back and says, jailer set him free, where would Joseph have gone upon his newfound freedom? Maybe back to Potiphar's house, but I doubt it. Mrs. Potiphar is still there. Where would he have gone? I suspect he would have gone back to Canaan. He even mentions that. I've been removed from the land of the Hebrews. Maybe back to see his father. And two years later, when Pharaoh would have had a dream, he would not have been there to dream to interpret that dream. But God is keeping him in prison for these two long years because he would be the only person who could interpret that dream. He would be catapulted to this position of leadership and through his wisdom, through his competency, he would save a nation, save nations of nations during a time of unprecedented famine and death. As we move forward to a conclusion, I want to do as I've previously done in these messages and and show you some of the parallels between Joseph here in the end of Genesis and Jesus who would come some 1,700 years later. Joseph had two prisoners on either side of him as he suffered in prison. Jesus, as he suffered on the cross, had what? Two prisoners, one on each side of him as he suffered. God's servant speaks with authority to these convicted prisoners. One is condemned to death. One is promised the deliverance of life. One is saved and one will perish. One will be brought to the right hand of the king and one will become the food of the scavengers. But there's a stark contrast here between them as well. You see, in Genesis, innocent Joseph says to the cupbearer, remember me when you come back into the kingdom. And the cupbearer forgets him. But on the cross, the guilty sinner says to the king, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus does not forget him, but he remembers him. That's our Savior. That's our King. Even though we are all guilty criminals, though all of us have broken God's law and we stand before him condemned to death, the penitent sinner who comes to Jesus and says, remember me, will never be forgotten by him. And there's even in this cupbearer and the baker and their respective dreams a picture almost symbolically of the appropriate and inappropriate responses to the good news of the gospel. In verse 20, we're told again, Pharaoh's birthday, he had both of these disgraced officials brought into his presence. And you can imagine they're waiting with bated breath on what the decision of Pharaoh would be. Would the interpretations of Joseph be true? But I want you to think about the symbolism in these dreams. Ponder it with me. In the cupbearer's dream, again, verse 9, look at it. He said, in my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were these three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. This is somewhat resonant of what Jesus said in John chapter 15, when Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, he will bear much fruit. There before the cupbearer in his dream is this vine growing of obvious supernatural origin because it buds and it blossoms and it shoots forth these grapes supernaturally. 
You know, in the New Testament, the fruit of the vine is symbolic of Christ's blood. And so here we have this cupbearer. He presents to the king the fruit of the vine of supernatural origin. He presents that, and he's accepted. The baker, on the other hand, what does he bring? He brings to the king in his dream three baskets filled with the labor of his hands. As I researched this week, I discovered that in ancient Egypt, there was a catalog of 38 different pastries they prepared in Egypt for Pharaoh, filled with all the works of his hands. He brings what he has in those baskets to Pharaoh. And what happens to him? He's hung on a tree. He's condemned. He's rejected. And these two criminals and their two dreams, really, though very similar, present to us the two distinct destinies that every human throughout human history will experience. The blessedness of life or the condemnation of death. All of us are in those two categories. Jesus described them this way. The sheep and what? The goats. On his left, he said, were the goats. And on his right were the sheep. The sheep, he said, they do not depend upon their own human efforts. They do not depend upon the work of their hands. But their trust is completely and only in the supernatural provision of the vine, of the fruit of the vine, of the blood that was spilled and shed for their lives, to pay the penalty for their sin. On the other side, Jesus says, here are the goats. And what do the goats say to Jesus? They say, Jesus, didn't you see everything we did? I mean, I was a pretty good fella. I mean, I did all kinds of stuff, even some stuff I did in your name. I mean, I would help people. I'd walk the old ladies across the street. Surely these baskets and baskets and baskets of works are good enough to gain your approval. What does Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're trusting in the works of your own hands, if you're thinking that somehow in heaven there's this grand scale, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, well, then surely God's going to say, come on in. It don't work that way, friends. If you're not trusting in the finished work of Christ, if you're not trusting in what Jesus has done for you, just like the baker, you will be condemned to eternal death. And the good news of the gospel this morning is that Christ has taken that death for you He was hung on a tree. He took the punishment for your sin. And just like the fruit of the vine is spilt, His blood was spilt to pay the sacrifice for your sins so that all who trust in Him, all who believe in His name, all who say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, they'll be saved. Are you trusting in your own goodness this morning? Are you trusting in the complete righteousness of Christ? I'll close with this. I told you on week one of this series that the overarching theme of Joseph's life is found in chapter 50, the last book, the last chapter of the book of Genesis. God meant it for good. Believer in Jesus, I'm talking to you right now. Whatever pain you're walking through, whatever health diagnosis you've just received, whatever loss you've just experienced, God means it for good. He will accomplish all his good pleasure in and through you as he sharpens you for his purposes. That leads to my last thought. 
God is accomplishing his purposes in our lives as we yield to him to sharpen us for greater effectiveness in his kingdom.